The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody! Not just anybody. You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 191 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Adley, your host. After retiring from medical practice, I became an activist for family caregiving. Our topic today is wills, powers of attorney, and family caregivers. Wills and all the complications that go with them seem to possess the power to disrupt families, even when everything is going as well as can be expected after a loved one has died. But the risk of disruption is so much greater if the death of a loved one was preceded by a brain disease like dementia, such as Alzheimer's disease, which actually is the commonest form of dementia. Disease which couldn't be stopped, reversed or cured, and a disease which severely impaired the loved one's memory and thinking, ability to carry out the simplest of tasks, speech, and even the ability to recognize members of the loved one's own family. Which is why our topic, wills, powers of attorney and family caregivers, is so important. To discuss it, our guest is Barry Fish. Now, Barry graduated from McGill University in the late 1960s with both civil law and common law degrees. He's the senior partner in his law firm, Fish & Associates Professional Corporation, which he established in 1973. He's a member of the Society of Estate Practitioners and has had lengthy experience in the field of estate disputes. He's a co-author of three popular books, The Family Fight, Planning to Avoid It, The Family War, Winning the Inheritance Battle, and Where There's an Inheritance. He's a frequent radio and television guest and a contributor to various publications, such as the currently published Advisors Seeking Knowledge. He's married, has two children, and two grandchildren. So welcome to the show, Barry. Pleasure to be here, Gordon. Great. First question. Please tell us more about your legal practice and about any experience you've had with family caregiving. Gordon, family caregiving comes up both positively and negatively in the course of drafting wills and powers of attorney. You've made reference to our books, and in there, among the various stories we speak of, of course, are the problems of the caregiving child, and we sort of scream from the rooftops to give some or a lot of food for thought to parents. When you have a caregiving child who does everything for you, do you treat her the same way or do you treat him the same way that you treat the children who live out of town? What about the fact that 
even though you have your capacity, you still need help. What if it's sporadic? How do you measure the quality and the quantity of help you're getting from your children? And what happens if the help peters out to be occasional? These are the ingredients of the stories that we have, not only in our book, but on our website. It's www.familyfight.com, where people in the public even contribute their own problems. The old stoic silence is golden. One does not speak about money. One does not talk about one's will. One makes it once and for all, and then... Uh, expects equal uh, treatment of all the children as heirs. We look upon this as ingredients for real, caustic, future family problems. Now, let's go into you, to the question of your book. Please tell us about it, particularly the book, The Family War, Winning the Inheritance Battle. So what do you mean by inheritance battle? And what can you tell us about the ways that you advocate for winning it? Well, first of all, I'd like to indicate that the subject matter of the family war covers a lot of areas which uh, can be picked up from our website. But in terms of a specific, um, we focus in a generic way upon attacking and defending wills once parents are gone. And within the book, one area which we will bring to light uh, for the purposes of this discussion is the tug of war between the executor and the beneficiary. In our book, if you're an executor, we'll tell you what you must know in order to defend yourself against an aggressive beneficiary. And on the other hand, if you're a beneficiary, we tell you what you need to do to get the executor to start disclosing to um, uh, alter what is going wrong in, in your perceived administration of the estate. You ask uh, or would ask about winning. We speak of what it is that you are involved in. We raise several points. First of all, you might rather win back the family than win one battle. However, from a war perspective, we also tell you what you need to know in order to win the war. Now, let's go to some examples without obviously naming names or identifying people, Barry. What, um, give us some examples of the kind of problems that families, family caregivers and family members encounter in these matters of inheritance that you've been talking about. I'll take one story from our book, The Family Fight. And again, as you indicate, Gordon, we use pseudonyms. We, uh, we must preserve client confidentiality. In any event, we'll call uh, this particular caregiver Joan. And in the case of Joan, um, her mother in early middle age suffers a serious stroke, and someone has to look after mom. And there's only two kids. There's, there's Joan and there's her brother. Well, here's your contrast. Joan sacrifices college, sacrifices what would have been a marriage, sacrifices entire lifestyle for her mom. And, yes, she, she does a heroic job. Meanwhile, the brother lives out of town, hardly lifts a finger, and, as I said before, we have this stoic attitude toward wills where one doesn't discuss it. Money is, is not a good subject to discuss. Will splits everything equal between uh, the kids after father dies, and father does die. And after he passes away, all of a sudden, brother wants to sell the house. That's when Joan says, hey, this is the house I've been living in. This is the house... Where I, I care for mom. 
Brother says, I don't care, I've got equal rights. My lawyer says, I, I have the right to force a sale, and he does. And, of course, uh, that totally destroys the relationship forever between the families. And one must remember that when you have a scrap between your kids, while you're alive, you're the umpire. But after you're gone, no umpire. Barry, what that comes down to, in my mind, is matters of fairness. Uh, because if fairness doesn't operate, it seems to me, from what you're saying, that's one of the factors that would destroy or maybe just disable a family. Now, first of all, could you just say whether fairness is something that's taken into account in these kind of discussions? And if it isn't, what else is considered? Remember, I'm coming at this topic from the lawyer's point of view. And uh, as a matter of fact, in... Um in the family war, we have one uh, segment called It Isn't Fair, literally under that heading. And I will probably come back to this point, but the fact is that when it comes to, as you say, fairness in the distribution of estate assets, the problem is that the courts in many jurisdictions, certainly most common law jurisdictions, will say, if you've done this for love, you've done it for love, but you haven't done it for money. So, no compensation for you, even though you sacrificed like Joan. Sorry, if your parents intended to do it, they would have said so. So, that leads to a collateral point. What if the parent comes in the office and says, yep, this is what I want to do. I want to compensate my child for the caregiving. I want an uneven split in the will. Now I think it'll be fair. Well, extrapolating from Joan's situation, along comes brother with his lawyer and says, well, we don't know about that. We don't know if that was her true intention. We don't know if there were suspicious circumstances surrounding the creation of the will, and on you go with another battle within the battle. What we advocate is, look it, if you're going to do that and you're going to make your will expecting something like that reaction or anticipating it might be a problem, write a letter explaining why you did that will and sign it. Not with witnesses, not as a holograph will, just as an explanatory letter. That will have an enormous weight when it comes to the battle. And just on the practicalities, when you're talking about writing a letter by, like that, does it actually, is that a letter that's coming from the parent coming from the child. Who's it coming from? It's coming from the parent saying, I've created a legal document. These are my reasons. In fact, we even go a step further. We say, let your kids know ahead of time. Let them know what you want to do. Let them know your reasons for doing it. Because you're diffusing and you're still around. And I appreciate that we're talking in the context of dementia. But Remember that in order to make a will, you need capacity to make a will. And the level of capacity to make a will is the highest level known to law, which means you don't leave the will to the last moment. You don't leave it to the time when capacity is declining. You do it when you're clearly healthy. 
Barry, I'm just going to ask you to define capacity. What does that actually mean? Uh, I don't mean in normal terms. I mean to lawyers and to doctors. What does it mean? The word capacity in law means that your ability to form consent to do something lies above a certain threshold. The threshold is factual. We will come back to this point. It may surprise your listeners to know that there is more than one threshold. For example, you can have sufficient, quote, capacity or consent to marry, yet not have enough capacity to do a power of attorney for personal care. Second point, you can pass that threshold and not have enough capacity to do a power of attorney for property or finance. Third point, You can have enough capacity for all of those things and yet fail to have the capacity to do a will. So capacity is a number of thresholds. And this is a point where um, I'm sure we'll have further comment a little later on in our conversation. Okay. So what I'm getting from that is that this is a very high standard from... Oh, yes that the law applies. And therefore, is this right? Just a quick conclusion. Therefore, going carefully into um, what's intended by the person making the will is profoundly important. That's right. Right. Correct. Got it. Okay. Now, talking of things being important, we have to take a break here, which is where we pay our rent. So let's do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley. My guest is Barry Fish. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Powell River. Please stay with us. We will be back. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com What if you were willing to be controversial, choosing kindness instead of judgment, willing to stand out from the crowd, being a leader in creating a new reality, even if others don't follow? You can make a difference. Start by tuning in to The Value of Controversy. Each week, our hosts will bring you the tools to help create the world that you want to live in and explore what's possible when you choose from the controversy of consciousness. Listen for The Value of Controversy every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week. Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Barry Fish. Our topic is wills, powers of attorney and family caregivers. Um, Barry, you know, we hear a lot about power of attorney and its uses. So let's discuss these 
as they relate to wills and inheritance. Now, Barry, my first question to you is a multi-part one. First of all, are wills and inheritance the same thing? What is inter- power? Are they are the same thing. Attorney the same. Okay, right. Power of attorney. And what should families and family caregivers know about it as it relates to wills and inheritance? Now, you've covered some of this already, but I'd like you to reemphasize it because it's so important. A power of attorney is a legal document which lets someone you trust step into your shoes to help you with, on one hand, your finances and property matters, and on the other hand, medical care and personal care matters in circumstances where you can't um, act on your own. Now, there's a few twists and turns uh, that I have to go through, and I'll try to really make them very clear. First of all, power of attorney, attorney does not mean lawyer. It means the someone you choose, typically the trusted husband or wife, uh, very often the trusted child. Attorney um must be someone you trust or you're going to have problems which we'll identify further on. Now, you must know that a power of attorney ends at death. People don't understand this. In fact, they think their will is all they need, and that's not true. A power of attorney is one of the most important documents you will ever sign in your life, and I wonder how many of your listeners have one. If you go to www.familyfight.com, you'll find information which indicates that the government can step in to seize and control where there's no power of attorney and there's other complexities that um, can be read about on the website. Uh, we had one instance where there was a television program, a news clip on the website, and it features a woman who was crying that everything her husband had was frozen by the government because he had a stroke and he had no power of attorney. This included her home. And there's other uh, uh, features on the site. Now, one caution about that. Your document must be carefully drafted, and you have to be careful about what will unleash the power. Now, I want to make clear for your listeners Um, a few distinctions so that there's no confusion. We're going to sort of do the Grand Canyon. On one side, we have the power of attorney covering property and finances and everything of that legal nature. On the other side of the Grand Canyon, we have the power of attorney for medical, personal care, heroic measures, etc. Let's talk about them separately to avoid confusion. So we're going to stick to the property one. Now, the most confusing point on the property side in many, many jurisdictions is when does it become effective? We already know when it stops being effective, that's when you die. But when does it start? And here's the source of a lot of confusion, because a lawyer in most jurisdictions can take instructions to make it effective upon delivery, not upon mental incapacity, upon delivery. Now, this is predicated upon a huge assumption that the person you're choosing is eminently trustworthy. But, of course, spouse to spouse, you have intertwining financial relationships for decades. There's no reason to hold back the power unless there's a bad marriage. So... 
your listeners might say, well, wait a minute, I'm going to be really careful. Why should I even risk letting it go upon delivery? Why should I have the power flow upon delivery? I can really protect myself by making the power flow only when I'm determined to be mentally incapable. How can I lose? I'll tell you how you can lose. Let's talk about the stock market right now, this moment in time. Dow Jones at a record high. And there's incapacity. And there's a trusted advisor. And the trusted advisor thinks that we're pretty well as high as we're going to go. We've got this problem with fiscal cliff. Let's sell out. Let's liquidate. There's going to be lots of nursing expenses, etc. Let's just go with it. Well, problem is the trusted person who has the power can't exercise it until he shows that the person who gave the power is mentally incapable. So how is he going to do it? We'll come back to this a little bit later, but how is he going to do it? Got to get a doctor's opinion. Well, there is no doctor's letter, so he starts calling around to find the doctor. The doctor finally comes up with a letter, and he says that uh, Mr. Smith has had some long-term memory loss, and he has uh, uh, some uh, uh, dysfunction. He's on certain pills, but his heart rate is good, yours truly. Well, trusted advisor gives this to the stockbroker. Stockbroker gives it to the back office. Back office gives it to the lawyer. Lawyer blinks his eyes and says, what's this? I didn't read one word about incapacity. Meanwhile, all of a sudden, fiscal cliff, stocks go down, can't sell them, desperate to sell them, still can't get the opinion. What are you going to do? That's the problem when you trigger it too safely. Now, just let me clarify something. Um, That is, there are two uses of power of attorney, if I've understood you, Barry. One is to do with property, money, and that kind of thing. And right. the other is questions of health, health care, and decisions presumably relating to types of treatment, whether people go into a particular form of care. Am I roughly right in what I've just Correct. said back to you? Correct. Okay. That's the basic distinction. Okay, great. Now, is there anything else that you would want to say about those two uses? Because I'm wanting to ask you now, what are the main difficulties, challenges, complications, whatever, that arise in these two uses and how can they be minimized? Um, so if we're going to stay with those two, and I think we are, those two uses, what are the main difficulties and challenges that are going to arise? Well, let me speak uh, generically, but I'll focus on the uh, property side still for um, illustrative purposes. So the challenges and complications in bullet point form are as follows. Number one, you took the form off the Internet, it's non-compliant with your jurisdiction or it's out of date or it's badly worded. So that's the first problem. Assuming you got over that problem, you did it perfectly, but the witnessing is improper. Assuming you did that, the attorney improperly named. Remember that uh, you're talking about serious transactions here. People are going to want photo ID, and uh, a misnomer on the power of attorney is playing with fire. Assuming you get over that one, you've done everything perfect, but your attorney is either too old or has become badly injured or infirm or even incompetent himself or herself. 
and that there is no backup or alternate attorney named. And then you have the two worst ones of all. Assuming you've done everything perfectly, you chose the wrong person who's going to abuse it. And assuming you've done everything perfectly, you have not left a roadmap for who is supposed to look after your affairs, meaning where's the uh, property uh, I, I own? Where are the deeds? Where are the bank accounts? Where are the bank books? Who, who are the stockbrokers? How many are there? What mutual funds do I have? Where's the tax returns? Who's the accountant? You have to leave a roadmap. So those are sort of the bullet point difficulties you get into on the property side. Now, on the personal care side, we sort of slide in a layer of, of comfort, that the rigors that I've been emphasizing on the property side are a little bit, a little bit less pronounced on the personal care side. Um, there's there's uh, more, how shall I say, accommodation to a point. But on the personal care side, we still have the personalities who may be wrong. And what, one of the um, not-so-obvious points I'd, I'd raise on this, on the personal care side, let's say you have three children, you love them all, and you make them uh, joint. And joint in common law means they all have to act together. Joint in several means anyone can. Or you could have a majority clause where two out of three can't. But suppose you have three and it's joint and you have a medical emergency. What do you do? Well, the bad news is you, you essentially had an ineffective document. The good news is you might just have a complacent or compassionate medical practitioner. For example, mom in the long-term care facility, um, they ask, uh, can we give her Tamiflu? Uh, sure. Uh, they may just take one out of three and, and be happy with it. It's a little risky, but that's okay. Um, if mom has breathing problems, uh, do we go to a hospital or do we do what we can inside the long-term care facility? Again, the child, one child out of three says, no, no, you, you can try what you can. Risky? Yes. It could be uh, problematic, but as I say, the rigors of the financial aspect aren't quite as pronounced on the personal care side. We get a little bit more dramatic, of course, when it comes to heroic measures and revival, but that's, that's another story. What about going to a doctor and asking the doctor to say whether somebody's competent in the sense that you described it before, that is able to uh, make a, some kind of informed decision about something? Um, where does power of attorney fit there, if indeed it does fit? Gordon, I'm delighted with that question. I've been wrestling with this problem for years. What we ask for the medical profession is please, please be clear. Understand that we as, as lawyers need to know for certain reasons if they're above the line of cognitive capacity or below the line. We want to know they're above the line when we're trying to do documents such as powers of attorney and wills, make no mistake about it, we will not, as, as a law firm anyway, we will not do our own assessment. Surprisingly, common law in many jurisdictions allows us to, but we do, would do so at our peril. If a person's 92 years old, um, a little bit slow on the speech, nouns aren't coming so quickly, but seems okay, we want a capacity assessment. 
we will not want to be in the witness box when there's a fight if something goes wrong. We want the doctor to be clear. Is that person above the line? If the person is not or questionable, we don't touch it. Conversely, in terms of the type of power of attorney where the power is unleashed only upon the determination of mental incapacity, we want the doctor to tell us, is it triggered or isn't it triggered? And I have a story on that if we have time. I'm going to stop you there only because um, we do have uh, a break to coming up, and so we'll do that. But I'm going to ask you, as the next segment starts, to give us your story. Absolutely. So let's, okay, so let's go into the break now. This is Dr. Gordon Adderley, and my guest is Barry Fish. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Power River. Please stay with us. We're coming back. This is the home of the top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. Who are we? Can we really make the world a better place? How can the mantle of personal power be most effectively passed from generation to generation? There is no correct answer, but by tuning in to Birthright of Power with Reverends Don and Jane Lewis, the goal is that you will find some help in this journey. What does it mean to be a warrior with multiple meanings of that word? How do we stay strong in the face of changing times? Listen to Birthright of Power, live every Monday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We're on Facebook, along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Barry Fish. Our topic is wills, powers of attorney, and family caregivers. Barry, you were going to tell us a story relating to difficulties uh, over capacity and powers of attorney. Please go ahead. Now, on this story, uh, unlike the bullet point treatment before, I want to animate it and give it the full, sort of the full uh, drama. Mom dies, father's about 70, good-looking man. Um, weakening in his capacity, weakening, but a very healthy guy. My client is daughter, only child, loving daughter, cares with all her heart for her dad. And it may not surprise you to hear that um, women find him attractive and he's, he's fairly well off. And the old expression gold digger comes up, and daughter knows that someone's after his money. Now, position yourself in this fellow's shoes. He's got declining capacity. 
uncertain, and he needs company and loves the company, loves the adulation of uh, what he perceives to be an attractive woman. Daughter is absolutely convinced that this woman is going to break him and take him for everything he's got and then leave him. Well, yes, there's a the power of attorney. Guess what? It's worded that upon determination of uh, my incapacity, my daughter such and such shall have the authority to look after my financial affairs, etc., etc. Well, daughter comes to me, and uh, I ask her the typical question, need the doctor's letter. And she says, I'll see what I can do. And she sets about uh, on the course of, of getting this uh, doctor's opinion, which is somewhat time-consuming. And the drama of the story is what happens in the window of time between my first conversation with her and the doctor's letter. The following events take place. $25,000 goes missing from the father's account. The house is, uh, had been uh, registered jointly in the name of father and daughter. Father, at the urging of this uh, pretty woman, um, the gold-digging woman, visits a lawyer who demands of the daughter that she move title back to the father's name so he can have it on his own. And she knows what's coming next, that there's going to be a request for a mortgage on the property. And it's mortgage-free at this point. Well, uh, the, da- the daughter comes back and saying, look, I got this horrible letter from this lawyer now accusing me of, of failing to give my pro- my, the property back to dad. And it gets very nasty. Uh, her first attempt to get the opinion is mediocre. It's not the type of opinion that I think would trigger She goes back and finally, finally gets a solid opinion. And with this, I'm able to go back to the lawyer, get him off her back, start to um, get the bank accounts moved. At least the daughter starts to get bank accounts moved. And the loss uh, is less than 50000 so in terms of the happy ending, it's moderately happy. Now, my point is, had that power of attorney been uncluttered by the requirement to um, have a medical opinion, the daughter could have acted at day zero, and there would have been no financial loss. And again, it comes back to the point that I said I would come back to. Please, medical practitioners, we need to know about that cognitive line. We don't want it fuzzy. Tell us the truth and tell it clearly. Now, earlier on, I said that there were a few thresholds. We as lawyers don't want to have to pick apart which threshold it is. If we want the opinion, we want it clear. We want it low enough that it'll trigger, if it has to trigger a power of attorney, we want it high enough uh, to support a will if it has to be. We want the truth, good or bad, but we want it, and we don't want it fuzzy. Now, I'm going to just inject the idea of dementia and Alzheimer's disease into the story that you've given us, because the elderly man may be on the road to loss of his mental capacity thanks to Alzheimer's disease or other dementia. But in the early stages, as you know, doctors have difficulty being clear about the diagnosis. Is this just aging or is this something else that's creeping in? So let's, for the moment... Barry, I'm going to put a question to you in this way for the moment. 
let's say that dementia is a factor to be reckoned with in a particular family situation. What are the problems in the use of power of attorney that families and family caregivers most commonly encounter, and how do you see them being minimized? Well, from the uh, point of view of the parent, um, <clears throat> there's one very dramatic sort of one-liner I would put in. When you uh, don't look after yourself in terms of a will and you really mess things up for your family, it's bad. We all know that. But you've passed away. You don't know. You're not there. But when you mess up a power of attorney, you're there. You are there. If you have a moderate Alzheimer's, you're still not lying on a cot catatonic looking at a ceiling. You're still changing TV channels, laughing at jokes. You're still personable and social. Um, what, what you don't want is a situation where you have uh, an abusive, I'll use the word child, that um, accessed the uh, power and the power of attorney because you were politically uh, motivated within the family because the eldest child really always got it, so the eldest child will get it. Um, we, uh, as lawyers, have seen terrible things where... Uh, parents being put on an allowance, um, living practically in penury, and, and the, the children uh, not accounting properly. Another version of that is where you have a good child and a bad child, and um, uh, one is attacking the other. Um, sometimes you have a parent who may be uh, below the uh, line of capacity, uh, somehow manages to get a document done, certainly not through us, but managed to get a document done, and you have um, altered representation. One moment you had the child who was named for, for 10 years, and the next moment you have the other child suddenly named. You say to yourself, well, what, what would cause that? What would cause that is the bad child says to the parent, either give me the power or I'm not looking after you anymore. You can go to your own doctor's appointments. So uh, there is an abusive, an abusive element here. And unfortunately, as you go down the road to further decline in capacity, the more vulnerable you are to the abuser and the larger the threats loom. So I, I think in... It's a very sad topic. In, in I'll say the netherworld of um, sub-threshold activity, a lot of very, very evil things are perpetrated and um, uh, tremendous damage is being done. Uh, I don't think you're into the subject of elder abuse, but, I mean, this is where that discussion goes. Right. Now, I'm going to ask you about the role of the lawyer. And let's put a situation that's very similar, if not identical to the one you've just described, but where it seems clear that the elderly parent is slipping down the road of Alzheimer's disease. And there's also the question of a significant part of the family's financial heritage still belonging to the person who's slipping down that road. So what 
What, in general, is the role of the lawyer in this situation? Well, it, it's a question which poses difficulty because, as lawyers, uh, we cannot act in conflict of interest. So the question becomes, who is our client? I think the thrust of your of your question has to be that the child becomes the client here because the parent is too far down the road in your example, to to be uh, to form the capacity to retain counsel, so the child is the client, and yes. uh, our question to the child: Have you been named in a, in a in a power of attorney? And of course, if the child has, we we can we can build on that and give a lot of very very constructive advice. But if the child has not been named, in the old expression, the horse is out of the barn already. Um, what happens in in many jurisdictions is that where the ultimate determination of incapacity is formally rendered, the state is advised, uh, one of the ministries, um, at least in Canada, uh, maybe a department in the U.S., and um, in the examples I gave, there is governmental... Um, control over the assets. Well, the good news about that is that there still can be an application by a family member to become uh, sort of a guardian of the property. It's a little bit lengthy, but um, there is ultimately uh, that sort of solution. And that's about all we can say to the child, our client. That's all we can say. I guess the other side of your question, what happens if a person attempts to retain us who we are nervous about. Uh, we want the doctor's um, comfort, uh, the letter, the opinion. Um, if the opinion comes in negative, there's nothing we can do. Absolutely nothing. Right. Now, I'm going to take the break again because it is that time. Um, but we're going to come back to some broader issues in the, in the next segment. So let's go after the break. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley. My guest is Barry Fish. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Powell River. We're coming back. your better business achieve that goal make good on that resolution the voice america empowerment channel it's your world motivate change succeed when you make decisions do you ever find yourself in doubt are you trying to figure out what's right with you are you ready to truly change your life Listen for the Access Consciousness Radio Show with the founders of Access Consciousness, Gary Douglas and Dr. Dane Here. Consciousness is all about including everything and judging nothing. Our program will help you break free from your personal limitations and enhance positive change in all areas of your life. Tune in to Access Consciousness, Thursdays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to doc 
G at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Barry Fish. Our topic is Wills, Powers of Attorney and Family Caregivers. Now I want to talk about the things that you, Barry, believe are needed to help family families manage inheritance fairly and effectively when serious mental health problems affect their loved ones. Um, I, it's probably not necessary to say this, but this is a growing issue in the North American population as people get older, as the mental mental changes that occur with aging. They may not be caused by it, but they, they occur with it. These sorts of problems are surfacing more and more widely, and as you've been saying, they can be very, very troublesome. So my first question to you is this. What more do you want to do and see done to help people and their family caregivers confront the challenges that mental illnesses like dementia bring to matters of inheritance? Well, let me frame it with one word. Um, it's a world of disproportion. It's not a world of symmetry. What I mean by that, in a world of symmetry, what would happen is uh, Grandpa has three kids, and his will gives one-third to each of the three, and then Grandpa dies, and then the three kids inherit, and they do the same, and one has two kids, and everybody merrily goes along taking equally. Nobody gets sick. Everybody just takes happily, and everybody gets along. That's the world of symmetry. That is not the world we're talking about. We're talking about serious, ongoing, perhaps suffocating burdens on caregiving children. And it's very, very unusual in my limited experience to see equality or anything close to equality in the burdens that the various children will carry. And this is not a matter of animosity. It's not a matter of bad intention. It's simply a matter of how life is. So brothers in New York, moms in Toronto, daughters in Toronto, and sons in another province. And as matters unfold, daughter picks up the burden. And financially, yes, they all contribute, but the life of daughter is interrupted by such things as telephone calls at 2.30 in the morning, not by mom's bad intention, just by the fact that she doesn't realize it's 2.30 in the morning. She just thinks it's a normal hour and it's dark outside. Um, mom may be a, a wanderer, so now... Um, Another day, daughter gets a call again. Uh, can we put a bracelet on, Mom? Uh, what kind of bracelet? Well, we don't want her going down the elevator. So if she has a bracelet on, the elevator won't work. Oh, okay. Meanwhile, there's a myriad of other issues that come. Daughter's visiting three, four times a week. Um, she's trying to balance a home life, a work life, and, and looking after the mother. 
Uh, son A wants nothing to do with any of this. Son B does his best and comes in as best he can, but you don't have symmetry. Now, in terms of the assets mom has, there's an old will. Guess what? It splits everything equally. If there's a big fight among the kids after death, and daughter says, oh, my goodness, I've, I've um, done all of this for mom. Don't I get rewarded? Well, most common law jurisdictions say no. No, it's, it's prior to death. You did it out of love. There's, there's nothing in the will. There, there's, it's one thing if, uh, if son um, built a house for, for mom or something and wants to get compensated for that. But in terms of uh, the caregiving, uh, our, our law generally says, no, you did it from love. If, if mom wanted to reward you, she would have. Now, uh, you get into uh, the counterbalance to that, where say mom has dementia, lawyer refuses to see mom on the grounds that she doesn't have capacity, but still mom's on the bank account. Um, mom may want to put daughter on the bank account and may say to daughter, you know what, look, I know I'm not 100%, but I want you to look after yourself. Well, she's putting daughter in peril, serious peril, because if daughter takes the money, she's open to attack by the two brothers. Your listeners may be familiar with the gifting done through joint accounts. Well, I can tell you Canadian law says that just because daughter and mom are joint, if the will splits what mom has equally among all the kids, daughter may be able to take the account in her name, but then she's got to split it with the boys, and there's, there's Supreme Court of Canada laws that support that. So the symmetry that we all yearn for just is not there. The burdens are random. They're serious. They're ongoing. There's there's no end. Years can drag on. Lives can be um, burdened. What can you do? All we can do is what we've been doing through the website, through, through the publications. We scream from the rooftops. Plan ahead while you have capacity. Still on that point, a 28-year-old who hears all this says, yeah, you know what, he's right, but I'm young, I'm not going to get sick. Well, the 28-year-old forgets what happens in a car accident. If he smashes his head against the window, he's young, but he could become incapacitated through an accident or a puck to the side of a temple. Um, in Family Fight, we have one segment where we're showing a traffic helicopter, and somebody would look at the side of the page and say, a traffic helicopter in the legal book? I don't understand. Well, the purpose of the traffic helicopter is because they're traffic accidents. And in traffic accidents, not everybody dies. People do get incapacitated, even at young ages. So I'm saying that the generic concept of, yeah, yeah, I'm supposed to do a budget, and I'm supposed to do planning, and yeah, I'll do a will, this is a nightmare when you have incapacity. It's a nightmare when you have declining capacity. Remember, to make a will, you need capacity. And if, 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 if you don't have a lawyer 
who can do it for you. You try it on your own, you're, you're looking for trouble. So that's uh, sort of my take on your question. Right. Now, you've already mentioned that the medical profession isn't always as helpful to you, the legal profession, as they could be when it comes to assessing capacity. But what about the medical profession and the help that they might be able to bring to families, family caregivers, and particularly the kind of people who may be uh, uh, getting old and may be running into the problem of slipping down the road of of uh, Alzheimer's and its like. What do you want the medical profession to take more notice of, Barry? Well, I think the bulk of your question can only be answered on the uh, personal care side as opposed to the financial side because, as I say, once a horse is out of the barn, uh, it's, it's just really too late. Um, the On the personal care side... Uh, my wish is for flexibility. It's, it's, it's not the same rigorous uh, world on the personal care side as it is on the financial side. I do think that the distinction between the two types of powers of attorney are essential for people to recognize. I think that the doctors should be... Um, cognizant of what lawyers want. Uh, we we had a seminar in our law society once given by uh, a psychiatric um, uh, physician, and he was very down to earth, and I wish all doctors were like him. And, and he had a, a discussion with us about incapacity. This is what he said. He gets up on the podium and he says, okay, you're sitting at your desk, I come up to you, I put a gun in your temple, I cock the gun, and I say, do a will in my name, or I'm pressing the trigger. Well, that's not, that's not um, anything remotely like in capacity. But as you start to change the example, um, listen, if you want me to keep taking it to the doctor, I'm going to want more from you. Uh, he he basically outlined a, a, a shallow decline, sort of a glide path. And he demonstrated that as you go further along the glide path, even before you get to the point of incapacity, you're still open to abuse. And um, I, I was very impressed with that treatment. I think, conversely, doctors should be aware that lawyers need that fine line. They, they need to know um, what their opinions are. And they, on the medical side, yeah, if, if there's, if there's, um, if, if there's an accommodation to the patient, I don't think strict legal uh, formalities should, should interfere with that accommodation. But I'm, I'm restricting this comment only on the personal right. care and, and health side. Now, we've only a few seconds left, but I just want to ask you this question. What's your very brief message to family caregivers confronting the challenges that we've been talking about? What do you say to them? Your efforts will not necessarily be rewarded by the courts. That's a powerful message, and what I think it turns into, yes or no from you on this, is 
get advice and start thinking early yes. rather than have things develop and overpower you. Is that right? Absolutely right. Okay. Barry, I want to say thank you for this very informative discussion on a very complex, challenging, and emotional subject that, as I've said before, is getting more challenging because of the aging of the population. More and more people are going to run into these problems. So thank you for sharing with us your experience, your insights, and your advice. And if I can say this, all success to you in your work because what you're doing is absolutely essential for people, families, and others to be able to live a life that's reasonably peaceful and reasonably fair. I want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear from you about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. Now, in our next episode, we'll talk about legacies and family caregiving. Now, in this way, we're not talking about property and we're not talking about finances. What we're talking about is the legacy of what people achieve in their lives and what they want to pass on to their families in the way of ideas, in the way of um, activities, in the way of influence to be carried forward. And our guest for that is a woman who um, has uh, a strong experience of being a family caregiver, even though she has what would be regarded by many people as a serious disability. And what she talks about is her father's legacy to her of caregiving. So with that, I'm afraid we have to close. Please join us same time, same spot on the Internet, and we'll talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again twice every week, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until the next show, we hope our programs help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. 